people. Welcome back to another episode. This is probably episode six in season two, so we're already surpassing season one. Today, we're our season two, as previously mentioned, is the season of interviews. Yep. And, now- and today, we are excited to have on the podcast another wonderful guest, Dr. Jonathan Gore. Dr. Gore is a social psychologist who received his PhD from Iowa State University. He currently serves as a professor in the Department of Psychology at Eastern Kentucky University. At EKU, he also serves as director of the Office of Undergraduate Research and Creative Endeavors, and he is the executive editor for the Kentucky Journal of Undergraduate Scholarship, a journal dedicated to showcasing the research and creative activities of undergraduate students across the state. And if you look at his CV, you'll see that he has had a very prolific career as a researcher. And something that stands out to me is that so many of his publications are with student authors, one of which is me. I was very fortunate during my time as a student at EKU to take classes and do research with Dr. Gore. And with his help as a graduate student, I published two first author papers. So we're very excited to have him here today to talk to us about his teaching, his research mentoring, and about his student-centered powerhouse of a lab. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Well, glad to have you. So I'm kind of part of the audience at this point where it's like Cassie has some like background with you. So normally when I ask like, hey, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you, whoever we're interviewing? It's always kind of like I have some sort of knowledge, but this will be like completely fresh information for me. So that's going to be pretty exciting. So I guess my like, first question for you would be like, can you tell me a little bit about yourself um, specifically? Just like your background, like what was your education track to get to where you are now at AKU, as well as like your general like research interests? Sure. So um, I'll start with just sort of the now. My, my general research interests right now are really three tracks. One is a cultural psychology track where we look at cultural values and, and how those relate to various different things. We've gone in different directions, looked at like religious values and um, you know, different forms of prejudice against marginalized groups and whatnot. So uh, that track is is quite varied. Um, the other track I have is related to the self, um, how the self-concept is formed and how it changes. And right now I'm developing a new, really kind of a new theory or, or offshoot of, a, of the self-construal theory, which is where I'm very much rooted in my training. Um, and looking at something called a physical self-construal, which is defining yourself as your physical body and what it's capable of doing. Um, I believe that it has a, a significant, uh, I guess, uh, likelihood of being able to explain an awful lot about male psychology and especially American male psychology. Uh, so I, I'm really excited about that track. And then the third one is uh, probably my, my most uh what I'm most famous for, if you would call it famous at all, is uh, my my goal research, goal motivation research, where I look at how people close to you, uh, which can include mentors, but usually friends and family, um, can actually boost your motivation to pursue a goal if they're pursuing the same goal with you, and they have they place the same value on that goal. Um, a lot of goal motivation research suggests that when other people involved, it's almost it almost dilutes your motivation. But mine has shown that it, it strengthens the motivation. Uh, we looked at that in about every context you can. You can look at, um, and I've been doing that for over 20 years, um, but the latest round we did was with athletes and how their actual game performance stats are related to that type of motivation. So that's really exciting stuff. And, and, um, and of course, Cassie mentioned that Students are involved in a lot of things, and a lot of the times the students are driving what the topic is, and I'm just sort of supervising it. So if, if you look at my Vita, it'll fall in one of those three categories, but then there's probably 20 other categories you could, you could put it in because the students are, are sort of coming in with these ideas. Um, so I would say I dabble a lot, and I tell a lot of people um, I have a great job because I'm paid to be curious, and hopefully you are as well. <laughs> Uh, it's really just you're paid to be curious and you have the tools to be able to explore any anything that you want. One of the mo- more recent interesting research tracks I've been doing is working in more qualitative data uh, collection and analysis. And lately, we've just recently went to a 
conference for uh, refugees from um, Swahili speaking countries, mostly the Congo. And we did some interviews on what makes them feel included and excluded at work and in the city of Lexington. That was just so great because you heard uh, lots of different stories and we were able to to sort of code on the fly during those interviews. Uh, that was a really great experience. And that's one of my graduate students thesis projects. And then a new thing that I've come across, which is really new and really kind of right in the line of sort of like almost strange, uh, but it's really exciting is uh, I, uh, I'm a hip hop artist. I've been a hip hop artist for over 30 years. Um, and I, I have a lot of ties with uh, the, the Louisville uh, hip hop scene. And one of the musicians, one of the MCs in Louisville posted on Facebook that he uh, dreams in sequences, almost as if chapters of a novel. Um, and, and everyone else is like, I do not dream like that at all. <laughs> And I go to bed and I dream, if I dream anything, it's like this weird conglomeration of a bunch of random stuff. And my brain somehow figures out what to do with that. And maybe, maybe it's something I experienced from that day that's thrown in there, but there is zero like continuity at all. So, so this guy is dreaming, goes to sleep. He wakes up in the same world and, and really it's the same city. And he explores that world and city and, and does, does different tasks and whatnot. So um, I reached out to uh, someone who wrote a writes for the APA monitor on dreams, like an expert, 30 year expert on dreams. And I said, I have this very interesting person that I really want you to meet. And I'd love for you to talk to him. And would you be willing to, to chat with us? And he's, and to my surprise, he said, sure, I'd love to, because, you know, you reach out to anyone who's, you know, an expert in the field, you never know what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. So last week, last Tuesday, we had a, a Zoom conversation just like this about his, this guy's dreams and this expert's ideas of what, what that even means and how it's very, uh, very different, but in some ways, possibly more common than we realize. And between um, the, the, dream experiences on on one person the dream expert on the other side and my area of just possibly this is a new type of self that's being manifested within a dream and just a type of self-concept um we're really excited to analyze in a case study this this guy's dream sequence se dream sequencing uh and it's just like like i said it's right in the line of like this this is getting into like can we actually as scientists capture this? Yeah. But but I'm thinking about, you know, all the different things I, I put the feelers out for, you know, students to get involved in. And this is one of those things I'm going to be like, I can only take so many of you because I know so many people are going to be interested in, doing, in analyzing this sort of sequence and figuring out what the commonalities are. So that's that's really cool and really new. Yeah. And, and, and it's it's the beautiful sort of you're scared a little bit of, of even jumping into something like that, but that that's, that's the risks worth taking is when it's a little scary. Yeah. So you asked about my um, educational background. I'll try to do that quickly. Um, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, and I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan from birth to uh, through college. So um, something that was developed in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is which places a very high value on education, um, and and oftentimes the requests for more you know taxpayer money to to fund education is often uh, approved. Um, so instead of the divestment of education, there's a large investment of education. And one of the uh, programs that I was in was an open school program. An open school program uh, is is set up almost like an asynchronous online class where they're like, these are the things you need to do today. And mm. let us know if you have any questions. Um, and it, in some ways it, it's, it's not been the most successful educational program for elementary school kids. But for me, it was a golden opportunity to knock out my schoolwork in like two hours mm -hmm. and work on back then I was doing comic strips as my artistic outlet. And, and so I'd read books and I'd, you know, I'd read novels and I, and I do comic strips. Um, so that, that really taught me how to be sort of self-sufficient. And sometimes people are like, how do you get so much done in such a short period of time? 
a lot of it comes from that open school education where it wasn't like this hour we're going to do math and this hour we're going to do reading and this hour we're going to, I'm like, nah, I'm doing all that in two hours and then I'm going to do my own thing and um, go off in these other sort of artistic directions. And many ways, my life has, has been like that ever since. Um, I moved into a more traditional school program in uh, fourth grade, went through went through that in middle school and high school, just like everyone else. Um, sort of went through a different career path interests uh, and eventually landed. I really wanted to be a psychologist, but like many uh, social psychologists, I had no idea what that was when I was a junior in high school. So I just, like everyone else, assumed I was going to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm, I'm helping my friends out and giving them advice. I might as well get paid for it. Um, so I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor um, for my undergrad and uh, majored in psychology, assumed I was going to be a counseling psychologist. And then I took social psychology and you know, relationships, prejudice, aggression, culture, all that stuff. I was like, people get paid to talk about this all the time because I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've always been really just interested in uh, social justice and, you know, growing up in a hip hop community, that's always been a really strong aspect of it. Um, so I was like, well, this like this branch of psychology is really tied to that and really tries to understand it. Um, so I, I ended up deciding to be a social psychologist. I got some uh, lab research um, and I did some real, real grunt work. I was doing coding on some uh, self-esteem project that was just a lot of coding. <laughs> I was like, and, and data entry. And I was like, this has to be paying dues. Like this has to be, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, how you work yourself up through the ranks. Um, I had a great mentor, uh, Jennifer Crocker, who's, who's a big name in social psychology, especially in, in self, um, self and, and social stigmas and, uh, compassionate goals. And, uh, from there, I went to Iowa State and worked with uh, another wonderful mentor uh, who I would say is her mentoring model is really definitely what I've adopted um, as my own. And that's uh, Dr. Susan Cross, who, who works in self and culture uh, and, and very much trained me up in lots of different ways uh, to, to be an academic psychologist. So um do any of you listening who are possibly um, undergraduates going into grad school, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I, I applied to many different grad schools and I was accepted into one grad school and it was a great fit. And all you need is one. You don't need a lot. And quite honestly, I kind of I was kind of relieved it was just one because it was like. I don't have to have any could have would have should have thoughts. It's just like yeah. I'm in grad school here uh, and and. Those of you in grad school going into the job market, guess what? I got one job offer at EKU. <laughs> um, I only needed one. It was a great fit. Um, but again, it was like, I can move to Kentucky and be a professor or not, mm-hmm. you know, or, or don't be a professor <laughs> or just do something else. Uh, I had lots of people, lots of buddies in, in my social psych program not go the academic route and, and others go in different academic routes. It's just like you, you're, you're trained up to do so many different things. Mm-hmm. But anytime you look at uh, the the best jobs, whenever like U.S. News or whatever does that, professor is either one or two on that list. And there's a reason for that, um, because there's just so many ways that you can craft your own day and craft your own lifestyle. And like I said, if, if you know, you can really put your whole self into it and and because I'm so curious and because I've my, my father in, in particular really just sort of emphasized intellectual curiosity and scientific curiosity, even though he never became a scientist himself, he was a science teacher in the public schools. I really adopted that and internalized that and just became curious myself. And now I feel like once you're trained up in the tools to ask research questions and develop um, different methodologies, the more you get that, the more you're like, I feel like I could do whatever I could, I could answer so many different questions. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and this is this is why that that like the dream thing is is kind of off, off the beaten path. But I'm like, I, I think I might be able to maybe capture something out of this. And that's just I feel like it's a superpower in so many ways that you have these tools. You're just like, wow, I really can answer a lot of questions that a lot of people don't know how to even do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you said it nicely earlier, just like you get paid to ask questions and be curious. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah, it doesn't shock me at all to learn that being a professor is usually like at the top of the job rankings. Yeah, I mean, we have our own complaints and we gripe and whatnot, but mm -hmm. honestly, uh, it, it's a great job. Yeah, definitely. And I just love like your high positive energy. Like, I, I feel like sometimes talking with people, maybe at the graduate student level, like it's easy to be negative about academia, but like this idea of just like curiosity and loving to learn more, because you're going from like traditional stuff of like goal setting and self to like you do cultural work and qualitative work to you're doing case studies to like, I think that's the embodiment of curiosity. It's just fun. Also, you happen to be like a comic strip artist as well as a musician. It's just like very eclectic group. I'm just like, oh, wow, what am I doing? I need to step up my game. Um <laughs> I think I might already now know the answer to this question based on what you said. Um, I was going to do a quick follow-up of about like what makes your teaching philosophy unique. Mm -hmm. And usually there's a lot of overlap when you ask people about the teaching philosophy, right? So a lot of people will say similar things, mm -hmm. but it seems like based off your answer, would you say like curiosity is like the cornerstone of your teaching philosophy or like building curiosity, or would you characterize it as something different? Um, I, I, I think it might be something different. Um, okay. And a lot of this came from, I guess if, if I were to summarize how I teach classes, I think about what is the class that I wish I had taken um, or what are the what's mm -hmm. the things I wish I'd gotten out of classes. I came to this realization that a lot of classes um, have sort of a text and test format where you read a textbook and you're tested on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't matter what the content is. It could just be whatever. There's a textbook for that. And, th and there's you know, quizzes and exams. And uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that format. But I realized that if if I were just another class that took on that approach, are we actually testing their content knowledge? Are we testing their memory ability uh, to be able to absorb the material in this particular way and retrieve and express their knowledge in that particular way. So I've dropped um, as much as possible. If I have full reign over whatever the class is, it, it has zero text, like it has zero textbooks and zero tests. So what I go for now is students reading primary source empirical articles and using those articles to inform their decisions on a problem that they've never thought about. Mm -hmm. And you would be amazed at the learning curve that I see in that particular context where I have students, I assign a, a reading or a set of readings for the week. And then I have the students get in small groups to discuss it. And I say, here's a problem. I want you to solve it. Their initial, whether it's undergrad or grad, um, their initial approach to it is, let me see if I can just draw upon my experience and anecdotes and and my best my best guess opinion for what should be done here. And I tell them, you have failed the assignment because <laughs> you're you're supposed to be utilizing empirical evidence through scientific literacy to inform your decisions. And everybody hates the first couple of weeks because very few people actually pass um, that particular thing. And that's when I have to do a lot of just growth mindset stuff and say, guess what? This is a new skill. You don't know how to do this skill yet. Many, and the point of this is that you're going to master this skill as we as we get to the end there. So they learn how to collaborate, they learn how to problem solve, and they learn how to utilize primary source empirical information to inform their decisions. So that it's like, this is why I think this should be the solution. And I tell them, if you can't do that, and you're just going to go off of your own experience and your own, you know, anecdotal evidence, 
you've actually wasted your time in college because everyone else who go, doesn't go to college does the exact same thing. They have they are not trained up in how to utilize primary empirical sources to solve problems. And that is the skill I'm going to teach you in this class. And it almost doesn't matter what the content is. It's just like, let's just build up the skill. Um, so I do that in my graduate social psychology class. I do this in, in, an, in an undergrad class called Scientific Literacy in Life. Um, and so I, I feel like my current teaching philosophy, you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I would never have said this, but now my teaching philosophy is I am building a skill set that you can only get in college. Um, and, and you're going to go out in the world and you're going to be solving problems and I, and you need to be solving problems this way, using good information, sound information, valid information. Um, because nowadays it's not a matter of finding information. It's finding the right information mm -hmm. um, and using the right information. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but explaining why that's the right information and someone else's information is, is not up to the same you know level as, as this particular information in addition to being willing to change your mind if somebody presents good information that challenges it but with more valid data um, and really just getting them in this mind state of you can't common sense everything you can't just use your own personal experience to solve problems and and in psychology it's like I and mean, what questions do you have about how you should live your life most of those questions have been answered in psychology and studied in psychology. And there's been research on that. Um, and, and there's been really good research on that. So it's, it's amazing how many of our students, undergrads and grads are, the, are in that mind state. And then I'm just like, you can't do that. You have to, you have to build up to this. And, and it's amazing how many of our students have never learned how to do that. Um, so I love like the whole, like, Oh my God, like I'm, I'm so overwhelmed by this new skill and it's like, good. You know, it's, it, that's great that you are, you, that's exactly where you need to be and realize you are not ready to be thinking this way, but by the end of this class, hopefully you will. Um, so that's a strong, strong emphasis in my classes right now. And I've ditched the, you know, memorize and, and regurgitate system. Um, I, I know they can do that. I know they've been trained up how to do that. I'm not, I'm not worried about not teaching them how to do that or practicing that. We're practicing this other thing, which is way harder, way more collaborative, way more scientifically literate. Yeah. Um, and right now I'm teaching a, a, the, the first half of a senior thesis class where we teach them how to write a proposal. And you've gone through this. You've, mm -hmm. you've learned how to write a, an introduction section, but I'm not teaching them how to write an introduction section like, can you write something that resembles an introduction section, but can you write a good introduction section? Yeah. And if you're, if you're going for that level, um, you, 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 you surprise a lot of people with the amount of feedback you give them. It's like, it's almost like every sentence needs fixed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was like, yeah. um, you cannot write like that. If you're going to be writing introduction <laughs> sections, uh, it's just like, so teaching anybody at any level how to write, like write with a capital W, mm -hmm. um, is, is a labor of love. I mean, you have to have a passion for teaching people how to do that. My, my mentor in grad school really just whipped me into shape with writing. And I'm still learning how to write well. It's just when you get students who've never actually written a 10-page introduction section, at least 20 citations, and has been revised multiple times. When they when students give you that draft, they've gotten into this mind state where the first draft is the draft. The mm -hmm. first draft is the paper. And it's like I'm telling I tell them your first draft is just a draft and get ready because you're going to be fixing this a lot. Yeah. And you don't realize how much you're going to be fixing it until you get it back from me. And I say, I'm going to write all over everybody's paper and just, just be ready for that. Um, and so it's a shock. It's just like, oh my gosh, did you hate my paper? It's like, I didn't hate your paper. I just 
telling you what needs to be fixed. <laughs> this collective <laughs> feedback, that's what, that's what this is. And this is how you learn how to write. I was going to say I felt the same way where our advisor, um, when it's like 95% red text of like edits. And it's like, when you first start out, that sounds like, it's like, oh God, I am a failure as a writer. Yeah. You have to like change your mindset. Like, I, I love that. It's like, it's consistently growing. Yeah. And I feel like there's this old joke of like, never label your Word document as final. Oh gosh, yeah. Because there's always going to be a version six and a version that's, seven. That's a version version of eight. Yeah, that's a version of academic hubris to be like, this is done, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your, your your mentor begs to differ. The reviewers in the journal beg to differ. Yeah, it's not final. Um, yeah, and it's just, um, we, I, I feel like in so many ways, I have to apologize for their educational experience and say, I'm, I'm sorry that you have not been given multiple chances to write a paper and given corrective feedback on a paper until now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is going to come as a shock. And, and in many ways, the, the way that things are set up and the way that students approach our classes is what is the least amount of mental energy I can put into this to get the grade that I want? Yep. And that is the approach. That was my, that was my approach. Um, and it's, it's sort of like how much autopilot can I put into this and, you know, and, and then that's going to be the grade I'm going to get uh, that I'm shooting for. It's just, it's unfortunate because it's not a mastery approach. It's more, let me just get the grade that I want. And it's almost like shut up and grade me kind of thing. <laughs> um, and it, it's unfortunate. And, and it's absolutely not the student's fault that they think that way. It's because we are not. Uh, approaching things from a mastery level either we're trying to utilize you know uh, as as we're not trying to wear ourselves out with a bunch of um extra thinking and unnecessary thinking and and so we'll utilize lots of things in our in our teaching approaches and uh it's sort of like parenting um it's like you parent the way that you were parented and you're you teach the way you were taught unless you go to the literature again, being scientifically literate, and correct the areas where you're not doing so well, mm-hmm. um, and that you know that applies to teaching and parenting. That like if you're just like, well, have you ever asked what's the actual most effective way to teach or most effective way to parent? Because um, otherwise, your default is just going to be what what you learned and how it was modeled for you, um, good or bad. Yeah. So, yeah. So I really like this idea of like a teaching philosophy characterized as like skill building. Jacob and I have like talked a lot recently um, about how generally like we feel like most psychology programs like don't focus on at least making it aware to undergraduate students, like the kind of skills they can get with a psychology major. Mm-hmm. Like I think it very much like is this pervasive idea that like all I can do with a psychology degree is like something related to counseling or therapy. And so like these very specific like research skills and like learning how to be scientific, scientifically literate, I think are just like so, so important. And like, it's a skill that's very transferable for like a lot of different areas of life. Um, But you were also talking about like with your like students in these classes about like talking about, you know, a growth mindset and like, you're probably really uncomfortable with this skill right now in the beginning because you haven't developed it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm wondering like, when it comes to like students, maybe like wanting to join your lab or like students in these research oriented classes, how do you overcome like that very common narrative of I can't do research because I'm te- so I'm teaching research methods for the very first time this semester. I'm so sorry I- to hear that. <laughs> And it's been a lot of that, though, you know, like they're very intimidated by it. And a lot of them think like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, do you have any advice? Like, how do you help them overcome that? And like, how do you make research more approachable? I, I think you need to first understand what students experience with science has been up until you. Mm-hmm. Um, science is being taught in our in our schools as a set of of undeniable facts 
about the way things work. And that is absolutely not what science is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's the method. It's the process. It's it's a it's a corrective process. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that people have these questions about like people get really annoyed about people who are just like, oh, the, the earth is flat and you can't, you know, everyone's lying to you and they're like, earth is flat. It's like, why am I supposed to believe what you say just because you say it? And people are like, you know, of course the earth's not flat, but I'm like, but they never taught this person how we figured out the earth is not flat. Yeah. The process of figuring out that evidence and the gathered evidence for that and the evidence that was suggested is not flat, but instead uh, shaped in an oblique spheroid, which most people say it's round, but it's, it's a little bit different than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do we even know these things? What is our process for discovering this information? And I think the real, the students, not not every student is going to be curious. Uh, most uh, Most people, I would say, just, they want the bottom line. What do I actually just need to know just to, to, to figure this out, to navigate it? But there's going to be some students who love being curious too, quite a few students, um, and really just giving them a chance to ask research questions that they want to ask about people. Um, and, and even if it's a little, even if it's not the most valid process, getting them interested in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so go on social media and note how many times somebody says this, or, or let's do an experiment. You're going to do two posts in social media, and I want you to change one little thing about each post and see how many likes you get for each one. Yeah. I mean, that's actually called A-B testing. It's done in marketing research. So it's, it is a marketable pardon the pun, skill um, to learn A-B testing and and that kind of thing. And it's really learning how to do, you know, manipulated independent variables. It's not all that different, Uh, but it's kind of in this context where like, oh, I don't need to understand these complicated tools and instrumentation, Um, but really just going in there and say, what what do you want to learn more about about people? Um, and and how can we answer that question? And the more that they have some control over that, the more they're going to be interested in it. So what I used to do in my research methods class was, was I would have a set of survey scales and, you know, criminal behavior and narcissism and um, all sorts of things. And then I would say, you, you're going to pick four of those and you're going to develop a, a research questions about how those are all related to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to, what I call it, sort of pick the usual suspects of what they're interested in. And sometimes students are like, I'm not really interested in these, uh, but most of the time they'll find something that that they're interested in. Um, and that was kind of fun just for them to see that. I think, I think I probably made it a little more technical than it needed to be for a first time research methods class. But um one thing that one of our other uh, professors does, which is really cool, is a content analysis of the the senior exit survey we give to our seniors right before they graduate. And one of the questions is, what is the thing you wish you had done while you were an undergrad? And they content analyze those questions, which is two, two things happening there. One is they're content analyzing. They're learning how to do qualitative content analysis. And two slightly more sneaky is they're they're realizing these are what the seniors are warning me about. You should be doing this now rather than later or not at all. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of sneak as did you notice that they fell into these categories? Well, what should you be doing it? What are the implications of this information? Um, so it's that kind of stuff where it's like, it, it's, it's valuable to them. The information is valuable to them. Um, so um I would say focus on, if you're teaching research methods, focus on the process of discovery and, you know, make room for lots of mistakes and and talking about those mistakes um, and giving them a frame of reference for some of these terms like external construct, internal validity, uh, randomization, blah, 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 blah. Like if you teach them those things like 
out of the textbook and you test them on it, they'll be like, okay, internal validity is this. I'm going to memorize this and I'm going to memorize all the different threats to the confounds and then I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And as soon as I get out of this class, it's coming out of my head. So yeah. there's just no experience for them to, to, to sort of explain, use those concepts to explain that experience. So I don't know what you're required to teach for the research methods class, but honestly, I would keep it down to like maybe 10 concepts and yeah. lots of experiences and just returning to those 10 concepts over and over and over. And that's more of a mastery of uh, those concepts rather than here's 50 concepts for test number one. Yeah. Here's 50 concepts, uh, new concepts for test number two. And they're just like, Argh. and they're really good at, um, you know, doing study guides and flashcards and multiple choice tests. Um, a lot of them can do that pretty well. But then when you're like, you get them in the lab and you're like, cool, you've taken research methods class. All right. So we're doing this experiment. Um, what do you think we should do here? And they're just like, uh, 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 it's yeah. like, you learn the skill. Uh, you, have, you don't know the how you just know the what, and you know, right. you have no idea what the how is. Um, so it's almost like memorizing all the tools in a, and a toolkit and they'd be like, all right, go fix that thing. And they're just like, uh, I know never used this. This, yeah. this does that, but I have no idea how to fix that. Yeah. Um, so it's better sometimes to just let them jump into the experience and make lots of mistakes and be like, no, this is what you actually need. And just tell them that's part of the process. You make mistakes at the beginning. Uh, and I tell students all the time, used to be terrible at walking at one point in your life too. And, you know, it's just like, and now you do it without thinking. Um, so it's just like, these are skills. These are procedural knowledge skills um, that you need to be focusing on instead of just content um, and, and sort of semantic knowledge of, you know, I'm learning about research methods, but I'm not learning research methods, right? I'm not learning the process of using the methodology. Mm -hmm. And that's always been, you know, a huge thing for me is like, I know they're going to dump all this information if I don't give them some sort of experience to base it on. Um, and they just, they need to have the experience. And, you know, I didn't teach you everything there was to know about all the stuff that went into those, those papers we wrote. We just, I'm just like, just go ahead and start writing it. And I'll, I'll tell you if something's wrong and we'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's so much emphasis on prepare, 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 and then do it. And it's like, it's just, I mean, how many of us learn how to drive by reading the driver's manual of our car and memorizing that and taking tests on how it operates and how it works. And then we drove, we, none of us did that. We drove the car. Yeah. We got in a couple wrecks and then we figured out, you know, <laughs> things broke on our car and then we learned how to fix those <laughs> or yep. figure out who should fix those things. <laughs> um, more like, yeah. Um, that's how we learn. And that's how we learn procedural things. And science is not a set of facts. Science is a process. So we need to be teaching it that way. Learning by doing. Yeah. Yeah. Learn by doing and screwing it up and fixing it. And and that's how we learn in so many different ways. You, you learn languages that way. When someone's like, that's not what that word means. Um, there, there's so many, there's you you probably learned a language and learned that there's like things you absolutely should not say in that particular way. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Even though it's maybe grammatically correct, you say it that way and someone's going to slap your face. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just like, it's that stuff is just like, it, it's it's more like you're walking alongside of them and you're saying, no, this is, this is not actually correct. Um, but you don't, you don't slap their wrist or whatever. You're just like, you know, be ready to, to receive corrective feedback because that's what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. um, and and they will hate you for it at first. They, they, they just don't like that. Um, the, the, um, I, have a, I have lots of quotes on my thing back here, most of them from other people, but one of the insights that came up, sort of uh, revelations that came up with for teaching is uh, the human brain hates to learn, but it loves to understand. So it's mm -hmm. like the work of going into like, Oh, this is really different. And, but once that clicks, they're like, you're like, Oh, 
And then it just it just goes wild. It's like now that I have this superpower of understanding, now I can start really attacking these questions. And it's just like you just have to tell students your brain is not going to like this. Your brain is going to fight you on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any of us who like, uh, if you've ever gone running and for when you first start running, your brain will hate you for that too. And just like, stop, we're going to die. Like that, that voice yep. is in your head, like yelling in your brain, stop, we're going to die. Yeah. And like, in that time. Oh, I'm not going to listen to you. Um, <laughs> some people do listen to that voice. All right, all right stop. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. it's the same thing that your brain is geared for. Like, this is why we it, psychology students are the perfect students to tell this. Your brain is designed to suck up a lot of energy, and it's also designed to, to be as efficient as possible. And so it's going to it's going to go into coasting as much as autopilot, as much as it's as much as possible. And you need to override that system and use more energy and and not go into autopilot. Um, and, and that is gonna get, and, uh, you know, millions of years, <laughs> tens of millions, hundreds of millions, who knows how long that's been a, a aspect of the brain itself. Yeah. But like that brain is an organ that will not, will, will fight you for that, uh, fight you over that whole process. And so just people have to be aware, you gotta push through that. That's something you gotta push through. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, that's a really long teaching philosophy that I <laughs> cannot put. I'm just like, here's my teaching philosophy. Oh, it's a, okay. Thanks. <laughs> that's okay. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit. Um, also, like as a, I selfishly asked you on here for some career advice. Uh, so also as trying to establish my own lab for the first time. Um, I'm wondering like what kinds of advice we're imagining mostly our listeners are like early career people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like what kinds of advice do you have for like early career folks about like how to start a productive lab and really like how to recruit good research assistants? Sure. Something that early career folks need to just unlearn. So I, I feel like this is this is going to be my book. All the things you need to unlearn based on your education. <laughs> One of the things you have to unlearn as an early career uh, psychologist is stop doing everything yourself. Um, in in your early education career, but prior education career, you have to do it yourself, or it's cheating, right? Stop thinking that way. That that is absolutely ridiculous when it comes to early careers. So the thing you really want to think about now is what are all the things that need to go into what needs to be done? And which of those things are the, are the things that only I can do? Like only I am skilled or prepared or or I want to have the control over those decisions. Those are the things that are mine. Everything else can go to somebody else. Um, and it could go to teaching assistant, research assistant, graduate assistant, whatever. And not so much that you're just dumping this on them, but but I'm going to take these things and train people up on how to do these things and make sure they're aware that these are all skills that that they're learning in this process. You know, if you think about like a, a, a research paper, um, some students can help you with different parts of that research paper. Some students can help you find articles and summarize them for your lit review. Uh, lots of students can do that. Mm-hmm. Some students can write the reference section, which most of us hate doing. Um, some students can actually write the methods section. Some students could analyze the data and write the results section. What are the things that only we can do? Probably the only thing that we can do is have that, you know, 10,000 foot perspective on the whole project mm-hmm. and be like i'm the theorist here you know i'm the person coming up with a big idea and then you are handling the, the specifics of the idea i do not need to collect my own data uh, i should not be collecting my own data because i already know what the hypothesis should be um, so in some ways it's it's more ethical for me to hand that off to someone else Mm-hmm. Um, I have more at stake over that hypothesis being supported than my research assistant who's just yeah. trying to learn research skills has. Um, so I would I would learn how to delegate 
Um, and, you know, you had mentioned that I have this really extensive uh, track record of publications with students. And I tell people over and over, like, I don't I don't have uh, I don't have that many publications despite working with students. It's because I'm working with students that I have. Those. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, they, they are doing a lot of the work on these. Would it be easier for me to just type up the whole paper and quicker for me to type up the whole paper? Uh, maybe, but um, it, it, it's honestly not that rewarding to me to get another publication. And when I get an acceptance, it's like, cool, next. <laughs> I, I just, um, I, I've, I've a line in one of my songs, just like going from none to one is more than hundred thou to a mil because gratitude is what you get from that. Mm. So going from zero to one, you're like, yeah. Like, I can't tell you how much students are excited about that first publication. They're just like, oh, I made it, I made it. Yeah. And like, and then whatever publication that is for me, I'm just like, cool. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Next, you know, next thing, like, I, I automatically go to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to make sure I'm celebrating that first article for the student more than, more than whatever it is for me. Because uh, that actually does not change my career trajectory, but it massively changes that student's career trajectory when going to zero to one. So none to one is more than hundred thousand to a mil. Um, so that's just, that, that's something I think about a lot. Um, Could I um, ask a clarification question? Mm-hmm. So it seems like the big point is like delegation. Um, did you face, or do you feel like for early career researchers, so maybe this is something that's either I'm just facing or I don't know how to comment it is, but I guess like trusting your RAs or like when it's a project that might be grant funded or it's like related to your dissertation or something that has direct relevance, it feels, again, this is just my trust issue, but sometimes I get worried, like, can I trust the RA to like do a good lit review or should I also double check it and do it myself? But then it feels like if I'm constantly double checking and doing myself, everyone else's work, I'm just like doubling the work. Sure. So like, I don't know what the right thing is where like you have to like just believe that your RAs are good enough that they are finding the information yep. or they are doing it well enough where you can be like, all right, I trust you. Yeah. Let me focus on the theorizing of a 10,000 foot view. Yeah. 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 So um, I, you, just like anything else that needs a vetting process. Um, so you don't just, so here, here's one of the best vetting processes out there. Research methods class, going back to that. Um, so if you have a student in the research methods class who is there every day is on time is professional asks questions, absorbs the information, um, has great insights into new ideas with that information, and hopefully your research methods class has some writing component in it. That is the best vetting process. And and I just say, <laughs> this, is, this is my process. I actually just recruit, I just pluck students out of my research methods class. <laughs> yeah. And I say, can I, can I talk to, you know, this person, this person, this person, can I talk to you after class? I promise you're not in trouble. That's what I said. Um, so we go and meet in my office and I say, just so you know, you are amazing at this. And I would love for you to work with me in my research lab uh, where we'll really bump it up a notch and we'll really get you some great professional training in this. They've already been vetted in professionalism. They show up on time, they, they don't, they don't uh, try to skate by on, you know, a bunch of excuses for why things are late or whatever, or, or they're professional in the sense that they can anticipate when they would need an extension. I'm not saying ask for an extension is unprofessional, but mm-hmm. um, asking for it after the fact is different than before the fact. Yeah. Um, and they're just, they're the kind of student that you're kind of like, I already know you can handle this. Like you've gone through stages one through three and now you're ready for the next set. Um, So you can trust them in some ways that they're going to, you know, at least show up. Yeah. Um, If you think you need to give them some preliminary job, like, okay, you've done really good in my research methods class. Now I I'm building a literature review. I need you to I need you to hit on these five points for every single article, and I want you to find every article in uh, PsychInfo on this topic. And and I need it done next month, and in four weeks. And and if they can't do it, don't put them on the next thing. You know, 
Uh, just say, I appreciate what you were able to do. And maybe you'll hand it off to someone else. Uh, but but have a vetting process where it's like you're, you're checking on how much they can handle. Uh, and then you can start assigning them to to whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, working with anybody is a, is, is a trust thing. Um, you could work with some of the nicest people on the planet, but they but your emails will get lost in their inbox. Um, it's just, you need to just gather this sort of psych, and we're all psychologists, gather information in a psychological way. What is this person's personality? What is their, what is their conscientiousness level? Um, what is their, you know, agreeableness level? Um, how neurotic are they? And I, you know, I want to work with them or not. And just like, you know, assess that through sort of behavioral clues that, okay, this person may or may not be, be worth sort of developing a long-term collaborative project with. And that's, that's what I would recommend. One thing also with working with students in particular is try not to keep it all business all the time. Um, and so we have our students out to our house and uh, every December we make we make gingerbread houses, but they're out of uh, graham crackers because those are more uniform. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we have them out. We build gingerbread house, have soup. And then like in the in the summer, we have like end of the year, we have like lawn games and bar and just grill out and whatnot. I just I treat it more like an apprenticeship. And, and I feel like um, m- my personal view is apprenticeships is sort of like the oldest version of teaching. And it feels very different than classroom teaching. Uh, and, and if you can develop sort of an apprenticeship program, whether you're compensated for that or not, that for me is the most rewarding part of being a professor. Um, you really feel like I'm really investing in, in these students almost in a, in a parental way um, that you feel like you're really nurturing their growth and, and development um, in a long-term way. And, e- and even in academia, we talk about my academic mother and grandmother or whatever. And just like, I got Susan Cross and Hazel Marcus as my mother, grandmother in academia. <laughs> just like, it was kind of weird, but it kind of feels that way. Like there, there is a generational passing down of stuff, like skill sets and approaches to things that eat, eat similar to uh, intergenerational um, passing down of, of sort of almost psychological heirlooms of like, this is how you're going to do these things. Um, so I, I think that's, that's how you get past that um, is delegate, but don't just post something up and say, Hey, want to join Dr. Witt's lab? This is what we do. It's yeah. like, I never do that. I'm just like yeah. you, you, and you, okay. you and you understand research methods. Come on. You know, really solid advice. I love this. Yeah. Um, so if, if you don't teach research, methods, if you're listening to this, you don't teach research methods and you're like, dang, I missed, I'm, I'm, I thought that would be a pain in the butt, but now I realize it's a great recruitment tool. Um, ask the person who is teaching research methods, who is a you know, really great student in there that you're not already plucking for yourself um, and is interested in, you know, this kind of stuff that I'm working on. And, and there's always, a good amount uh, to go around. Um, and some students want to work in multiple labs, but um, you just have to be careful about them being just stretching themselves too thin in some cases. But yeah, I mean, get get over the whole idea that you got to do it all yourself. You will burn out. Yeah. And, and you'll miss out on the, this sort of intergenerational, there's, there's few things that give you purpose in life, like investing in the next generation, feels great. Um, it's hard work, but it feels really good. It feels very purposeful. Um, that next generation could be related or not. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, so they could be your children, your students, or just kids you're mentoring in, in, in some outreach program. It doesn't matter. As long as you're investing in the next generation, that's a, that's a huge... There's something about humanity where that just feels so good. Yeah. And like going back to like this idea of like, why is like being a professor, like such a valued or like a cool job one. It's like you 
get to get paid to be curious and ask these questions, but then you do get to do this like relationship building with students, you know? And like you said, like you really do like get to influence the next generation, which, Mm -hmm. which is cool. Yeah. There's a lot of just sort of professional and personal growth in you that needs to happen as well before you pass that down. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a, it's a learning process for everybody. And you, you sort of have these moments as an academic and, and uh, for me as a real parent, where are just like, I really shouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> I really shouldn't have approached that problem that way. It would have been much better to do it that way. And it's a little too late to fix that now, but you can at least try better than that from here on out. Um, so that's just, you know, mastering being a mentor is no different than mastering anything else. You're going to, you're not going to do it exactly right at first and you be prepared for some feedback from, from all the people involved and, and work on improving. Mm-hmm. As a wise person might say, learning to be a good mentor might not be as fun, but like once you start understanding how to be one after the fact. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And, and we're just not used to delegating in, you know, tasks out to people and, and that's that's exactly what we're discouraged to do. And how many classes have you ever taken where it's like, here's this big job, but if you do it all by yourself, you'll fail. Yeah. And it's like the opposite of what we're taught is if you use anybody else in the classroom, you will fail, right? You'll both fail. But then you get into the real world and it's like, I'm going to build a business all by myself. How did I fail? I'm going to start a nonprofit all by myself. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, thank you for like spending this hour um, talking to us about teaching and research. Um, we always like to like towards the end, like give our guests like an opportunity to shout out like anything cool that they're doing. So like you do- did talk about like your very cool new like research path, um, but maybe like your your music um we can like link that in our bio if or like our show notes if that's cool with you or really just like anything you're excited about that's like going on um in your life career wise yeah i mean um i what i didn't talk about is just sort of lifestyle stuff and Mm um your job should never be your first priority ever ever um, so I, I, I really encourage everybody, my, my wife's a life coach, so it rubbed off on me. Um, but this is m- my top five priorities are God, family, health, work, and then my hobbies. And if a lower ranked thing bumps into a higher ranked thing, I say no, or tries to bump into a higher ranked thing. I say no. So um as, you know as much as possible think about how much where should work be on my in my priority list and it's just it's it's important it's just fourth for me <laughs> yeah fourth most important thing yeah um and and i i tell uh i tell new faculty all the time no one's on their deathbed wishing they worked more yeah ever uh, I just never heard of some of the, gosh, I really should have worked more. Um, so just, just remember that, that it's important and it's super purposeful, but it, it probably should not be number one. It could be number two if you want, but not number one. So um, hobbies are really important as artistic outlets. It actually keeps the brain active without forcing it to stay in academic mode all the time. So it's almost like you know, working out, you don't work out your arms all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like you have a full sort of experience. So, so I've been doing music for 30 years, um, vocals, DJing, um, and uh, instruments, and then learning just how to, how to record, mix, master things. And um, so, so my uh, band, I guess you might call it is we're called reeducation camp because we do sort of classic hip hop uh, music. Uh, so it's me on vocals and DJ and and some instruments. And then my buddy is from previous band I was in and he does uh, 
bass and guitars and synthesizers and it's a very different sound and we love it um and we've just been uh loving working with that so we're we're on a small label actually in out of uh bowling green uh cool. called uh bad apple records it's been around for quite a while over 20 years uh just a little little independent label um, I'm also a fantasy, epic fantasy novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I'm uh, on my 24th book for that series. And, and I'm planning to write 35 books. Uh, and that's just very, very different part of my brain. But it's so much fun uh, to write those and just bringing in all the things of theology and philosophy and psychology and culture and history and mythology and um, what I try to do is make it like centered on characters and the and the fantasy elements are kind of like almost in the margins, like all the weird fantasy stuff is like that's happening. But the primary thing is like believable characters yeah. and believable relationships of those characters. So it's a lot of the kind of stuff you'd see in any kind of novel, but it just has these extra weird fantasy stuff that that sort of sprinkled in there but lots of lots of uh uh sort of intergroup conflict stuff religious stuff um just uh leadership stuff and relationships family family relationships uh romantic and and marital relationships um tons of sort of themes in there that relate to just human themes um but that's just I, I could talk about music and the fantasy novels. And that could be a whole other hour for each of them. <laughs> yeah, we'll things, we'll have to have you on again. So it's just that that it's just that's just as fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's nice about that is um, although I just said don't do anything by yourself, um, there, there is something to be said for having something that's just yours, um, that you're putting out there and you're like, this is, this is all me and I don't have to edit it for anybody. And I don't have to like tailor it for any market. And I don't have any money attached to whether I do well on this or not, but I'm just doing it. And it just feels great. And it feels like this is a part of me that maybe doesn't get to be expressed in in other outlets. And it's just like, Mm-hmm. this this sort of is that missing piece so um yeah and I ask uh, what is the series called that you write or so my my pen name is vj magus m-a-g-u-s um and the series is called kingdom of one and there are several series in it and each series is five books a piece so cool. Yeah, what I, this actually started off as is um, I wanted to write a book with my kids as sort of the main characters in it. And so the first series is about them as young adults in this sort of this new world. And um, something happened where like some sort of wall came crumbling down. It's like, here's a whole world of ideas that is just going to come crashing down. I mean, I was like, so I wrote a whole bunch of notes down. And, and that's another thing I would recommend for uh, anybody doing any kind of creative work or knowledge work is write down every single weird idea that comes to your head and just write it down. And, and don't, don't worry about whether it's a weird idea or a crazy idea. You can worry about that later, but if it comes to your mind, just write it down. And, and, I am constantly in research music fantasy novel mode all the time, um, just by a default. And and these weird little ideas bubble up. And you should see my Facebook messenger to myself. Like all these voice recordings, like, this is a good line for a song. This is a good melody for a song. This is a good idea for this character. This is a good idea for research. Do you ever, like, listen back and be like, what was, hey, what did I mean by this? Or do you always kind of figure out? Usually, but but I'll tell you what the problem is, is I have to, like, go through it all and, like, write, put it in some home because I can't just stay in the Facebook Messenger. Like, all right, well, this has to actually be written down somewhere else now. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, it's just there's so many times when I'm just, like, I'm driving and I'm, like, 
putting in the, you know, the, the uh, microphone. I'm like, all right, this is what you're going to be doing. And, and there's like all this background noise or I'll be like in, in Kroger and someone's like you know, popping the loudspeaker or whatever. Or I'm at the gym and I'm like, all right, this is really weird. So I have to be really quiet. And people are going to start looking at me. Oh, that is so funny. But it's just like, it's just constant, like creativity can be, you know, manifested in research. It can be manifested in all these other artistic endeavors. Um, and I think that creating is sort of um, just the general theme of, of putting your brain in that mode where it's um, thinking about new stuff uh, almost as like you don't have to sit down and crank it out, but it's just popping in your head and then you write it down and then you, you worry yeah. about that later. Yeah. What is it, Jacob? Like the very top of Bloom's taxonomy is creation. You yeah, know? it is. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, I consider those like seeds. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll talk to people like who I'm going to collaborate with. And I'm like, we might not do this for two years from now, but I just want to plant this seed in your head mm-hmm. and then we'll come back to it and see what sprouted after we yeah. just sort of slid it simmer. The cognitive incubation is a big, big, big thing that I, you know, it, it's a real thing uh, that you, you have this thought, you leave it alone and you come back. And it's sprouted Mm -hmm. Um, and you just, you don't, you don't watch it and you don't try to yank it (laughs) by its roots. You like, just let it sit and and grow on its own and come back to it. It it really, you'll, you'll, you'll love it when you go to your list of ideas during the times when you are not generating ideas and it'll seem like you're constantly coming up with ideas. And that's what people keep thinking, saying about me. I'm like, no, I don't constantly come up with ideas. I just come up with like 50 ideas in one week. And then I just, I harvest that crop for a while until it's ready. Another batch is ready to come, you know, to the fore. That's how, that's how I do it. Um, And that's how it seems prolific, but it's just like, I just, (laughs) write down every single thing that comes to mind and it comes in waves that's good advice no awesome i was gonna say thank you thank you thank you so much for your time like it was a pleasure meeting you i'm already like messaging cassie secretly of like how we need a part two just like general (laughs) life advice how should one live their life by making mistakes and growing maybe we should have your wife on actually oh wow yeah let's get some life advice here yeah Kelly would love to be on on this. Yes. And she she is a she was a psychology student at EKU before mm-hmm. my time. And so she she knows all the psychology stuff um, and, and also knows a little bit about EKU. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, she would she'd be she'd love to be on this. Yeah. It's like you come back to her. She's like, how's, how did the podcast go? And it's like, well, they wanted to talk to you instead. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I've had grad students be like, so I, I did a little research on Mrs. Gore and I thought Dr. Gore was a big deal, but Mrs. <laughs> Gore is like, I, I, I say like, there's people randomly like, you're Kelly. Huh? And I'd be like, yeah. I'd like I'd say, I'd say, I'd call Kelly white Oprah. Just like, that's how people respond. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's definitely an idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm we'll, we'll be happy to, to jump on here. Sure. Awesome. For that, then, I think it's time to, for us to wrap up. Me getting into like my podcaster was um, ready to say bye, Cass. Yep. All right. Bye. Everybody. Bye. We're really bad at closing episodes again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.